Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back with Kevin Carroll for another episode of All Things Investigation. We're going to continue our investigation, or rather our exploration, of the various Trump lawsuits. And in this episode, we're going to take up the immunity arguments that were recently made in the D.C. District, excuse me, the D.C. Court of Appeals. So, Kevin, that long-winded introduction. First of all, welcome back. Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Kevin, we had one of the most interesting set of oral arguments I remember in my professional career. To set the stage a little bit, former President Trump has claimed he has absolute immunity for the actions he took up through and including the time uh, he left the White House in January of 2020. This, of course, includes events around January 6th that are the subject of Jack Smith's criminal proceedings in the District of Columbia. He first appealed via motion to the district court, found no immunity for ex-President Trump's actions after he was defeated and when he was now the ex-president. And he appealed that to the D.C. Court of Appeals. And we really had some interesting arguments there. I'm going to pitch it over to you. Tell it, I guess, maybe give you give me your initial thoughts. And could you have made some of those arguments with a straight face? I certainly could not have made the arguments uh, that were made by petitioner with a, a straight face. And I think that uh, Sauer, the uh, lawyer who's arguing on behalf of Trump, uh, disgraced himself and the profession. I, I had a chance to read the briefs on both sides. I had a chance to uh, to read the transcript. And I, I was just shocked that uh, an American lawyer who has, um, at the end of the day, sworn an oath to the Constitution, as well as to zealously represent his client, made some of those arguments to uh, three United States Circuit judges. One of the things that I don't think was, it was in the brief by the government, I don't think was discussed enough by counsel or by the judges, was that Article 1 you know, specifically says that impeachment and conviction or impeachment do, does not prevent subsequent criminal trial. It's, it, 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 it says it right there. It doesn't say except for the president. It's certainly anticipated uh, that someone could be impeached and that the Congress finds that it's not the level uh, to which you would want necessarily to re- reverse the results of a presidential election, for example, but that it might be something that needs to be punished afterwards. And this has always been the understanding. The council brought up, as a prayer, the government council brought up, uh, and the judges, and the fact that President Ford pardoned President Nixon for a reason, because there was an active effort underway in the U.S. attorney's offices in New York and D.C., to prosecute President Nixon for obstruction of justice for what he said on the smoking gun tape about having the CIA lie to the FBI and say that the uh, Watergate break-in had something to do with legitimate clandestine operations. 
Um, something they didn't mention, but I, I recall, was that um, after uh, President Clinton was impeached by the House, um, acquitted by the Senate, um, the uh, third individual to serve as um, independent counsel uh, on the, the Whitewater matter, Robert Ray, um, continued to keep the file open and ultimately made a judgment that it was not appropriate to prosecute former President Clinton because he'd uh, had to uh, uh, pay civil fees uh, for, for defaulting the case against um, Paul Jones, and he'd had to give up his law license, and that was punishment enough, and the country should move on. So it, it's really an entirely novel argument that you cannot prosecute the president unless he has been impeached, convicted, and re removed. And one of the things that was brought up by a TV commentator afterwards really struck home to me. If if you take former President Trump's argument to its extreme, on the last his last day in office, or his second to last day in office, the president could murder his political opponents. And as a practical matter, there would not be time to put together an impeachment trial afterwards. So he would get away with it. It's an absurd position. And I'm just shocked that a lawyer made it to the Court of Appeals. Indeed, in the impeachment hearing, President Trump's lawyers then made the argument that these matters were properly the subject of a criminal trial or a criminal adjudicatory process, whether that be to the grand jury, whether it be to a trial or other. So the internal inconsistencies were right up front. How did you think that part got handled? I thought that part was handled well. I remember when the second impeachment trial of former President Trump was going on, that a number of senators said, we've never prosecuted a former president before. Therefore, we don't have jurisdiction to do it. What, what they were not pointing out was that there had been uh, impeachment trials of former cabinet officers before. Uh, president Grant's Secretary of War, uh, which is what they used to call the Secretary of Defense back then, um, basically got, got caught taking bribes and was immediately fired by Grant um, and then went through impeachment, uh, trial and conviction to ensure that he could never serve in, in, in federal office again. And as you said, you know, during the during the impeachment trial, the senators gave speeches and former President Trump's counsel specifically said this shouldn't be handled this way. This should be handled in a criminal adjudicatory process. Senate Majority Leader McConnell was very explicit, and that was his reason for not voting to, to convict. And it was just nice to see the circuit judges skewer sour about his clients' uh, lawyers having said something before the Congress, before the Senate, and then something else before the court. There was a lot of, probably the most publicity was around a series of hypotheticals that were posed to counsel sour. Probably the most famous involved SEAL Team 6 and whether the president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate political rivals. Could you walk us through those series of hypotheticals? And I'm going to ask you some questions about that. I would have to acknowledge that SEAL Team 6 exists. I don't think I'm allowed to do that as a, a reserve officer, but I have had the pleasure to work with Naval Special Warfare units, including perhaps that one in the past. Assuming for the sake of argument that SEAL Team 6 exists, one of the circuit judges, I believe it was Circuit Judge Pan, asked the counsel for the former president if a president ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a domestic political opponent of the president, and for whatever reason, he was not impeached, convicted, and removed. Could he or could he not subsequently be prosecuted uh, for murder? And at length, the answer of counsel was that no, a president who ordered that 
could not be prosecuted uh, for, for murder. And again, it's just a shocking position. For example, perhaps in our very highly partisan environment we have right now, there were 34 senators that refused to convict the president for ordering SEAL Team 6 to murder someone. Then apparently, according to Sauer, the president would have carte blanche to murder away. And it was just distressing to hear this kind of thing being being discussed in a court in the United States. Just as a veteran, uh, it would have been meaningful to me if Sauer had begun to respond to the hypothetical by saying, Your Honor, with respect, I have to disagree with the premise of your question. No president would ever order such a terrible thing, and certainly uh, no uh, U.S. Uh, military naval officer would do it. But I'll answer your hypothetical. Uh, but no, he launched right into it as, as if it was something that could happen in a second Trump term, which perhaps it could. That brings me to some questions I wanted to pose to you in your role, actually, as a, I believe, Army reservist. You, as I recall, you took an oath to defend the Constitution when you became a member of the U.S. military. Is that correct? Correct. Can you remember what that oath is? I swore to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So you're hypothetically a serving officer, and you get that order from the President of the United States. What, number one, do you do? Is there any sort of process within a branch you're familiar with that such an order can be questioned or at least reviewed by someone above to see if it is within the bounds of what you can do, and how do you deal with that type of situation for the hypothetical? Great, great question. There is no process, formal process. And in fact, I was approached by an officer on the uh, serving on the joint staff in the days before January 6th about exactly what to do uh, if he was given an, an illegal order. So the first thing you do is you refuse to follow the illegal order. Uh, you state the per to the officer who gave it to you that it is an illegal order. What I would then do is tell the officer in command over me that I had received an illegal order and why I was not going to follow it. And I would tell my subordinates why they were not to follow the illegal order. And if it happened in a domestic uh, context, uh, I think what I would do is go over to the local FBI field office um, and uh, uh, make a statement to the FBI that, that I had received a, an illegal order. That, that was the advice I gave <clears throat> to that officer on the joint staff was that I would go over with him to the Washington FBI field office and, and make a report if he was ordered to do something illegal in that first week of January 2021. And we've had a lot of commentary from retired military officers, typically at the joint chief level or, or at that level, about the oath they take that you all take. I wanted to ask you, as someone not at the joint chief level, at least yet, it's now further in the ranks. What does it mean not simply to take that oath, but how is that oath reinforced during your military career? It's that we're the good guys and, and we're supposed to do the right things for the right reasons, regardless of whether anybody is looking or not, because we owe it <clears throat> to ourselves and our self-respect. We owe it to the troops we're leading who are supposed to be able to look up to us as being ethical leaders. And we owe it to the citizens who we've agreed to, who we've sworn to defend. It's really a meaningful thing. And it's what separates uh, the officer corps of the United States Army and our sister services and services in countries that have values similar to ours, like the, the British, the Canadians, the Australians, the, the, the New Zealanders. It's what separates us from being the Waffen-SS or the Soviet KGB. And, and it's, it's just very deeply ingrained in us 
and our ethos that we are not to do something that violates our oath to the Constitution, which is the mechanism through which we protect the republic and the citizens we serve. Kevin, let's go perhaps back more focused on the appeal. There's been a lot of commentary that the court may issue a decision relatively quickly. And then at least the prosecution asked for something called a mandate. Can you explain the now the appellate process? Do you think it's reasonable that the court could issue an opinion quickly? What's a mandate? And maybe what are the steps forward after an opinion is released? So I, I think the opinion could come quickly. My understanding is that, that when preposterous arguments are, are made to an appellate court, sometimes their response, their uh, opinion and response will be per, per curiam. You, know, you, you don't even have to have an individual judge sign it. It doesn't have to be long. Uh, you can essentially just say, this is balderdash and, and, and throw it back to the trial court. I think that, so what the Trump lawyers will do, because they want to stretch this out as long as they can past the election, is the next thing they'll do is that uh, they're, they're going to ask for uh, a review on bonk by all of the judges of the D.C. Circuit. I believe there are 11, and you would need to have uh, several of them. It might be four. I forget the exact number. Agree to the, the on bonk review. Um, they won't get it. Uh, then they'll um, seek certiorari from the Supreme Court. Um, again, I believe four justices of the Supreme Court have to agree to um, take up the case. Uh, they, they won't. They won't get it. So that brings up the issue of, of the mandate, and it's it's such a unique thing that I, I'm not exactly certain. I think it would be a matter of the Office of Special Counsel requesting an order from the Circuit Court of Appeals to the district judge for D.C. to proceed with the trial. But it's such an unusual measure. I, I, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure. So one thing is for certain is that we're both going to keep an eagle eye on this. When the opinion comes out, perhaps we can revisit it, but there probably will be some other issues to discuss. We're recording this on the very day of the New York civil case about the Trump organization, and oral arguments are being made as we're recording this. So there's that litigation. Of course, we still have the pending Georgia litigation. We have a pending New York state litigation, and we haven't in some time talked about the national security criminal proceedings in Florida, but those are still ongoing as well. So I think we'll have a lot to talk about, Kevin. And Tom, I, I'm sure we will. And and I tell you, I, I am just very afraid of people being harmed in the current environment. Justice and Goron, the New York State Supreme Court justice who's hearing the, the civil fraud case, who lives in the town I grew up in, Great Neck, Long Island, had a bomb threat called in to his home this morning, to his home. So somebody managed to learn where he lived and called in a threat to his home. Uh, a number of people, including Special Counsel Smith, have had what's, what's called swatting uh, uh, done to them, where someone calls the police and says that there's a critical incident going on at their house. The police go you know, rushing there uh, with, with SWAT teams and so forth. And it's very clear how somebody could be hurt in that, a pedestrian or another motorist as the first responders race to the scene or a policeman or a, a citizen who doesn't understand why somebody's kicking down the door of his house, exchanging gunfire. So we're really on the precipice uh, because of grossly irresponsible behavior uh, by the former president and disgracefully his lawyers in large part going along with it. Kevin, I can't uh, wait to see what we can uh, talk about next time. Thanks, Tom. 
Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning All Things Investigations. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. All Things Investigations is a 